Good morning. It is very good to be with you. It's good to be back in East Tennessee. My family is from not too far from here in the area around Clinton and Lake City. And uh, it's always a joy to be back in this area. I, I might add that in terms of introduction, the most important things about me are that I am the husband of one wife, whose name is Catherine, uh, the father of two, child, two grown children, Charlotte and Greg, and the grandfather of two young kids and one on the way. And for those of you who have not yet reached that stage of life, I can tell you all the hype about grandparenting is true. It's great. It's all the pleasure and none of the responsibility. I would ask that you would turn your Bibles now to Isaiah chapter 49, and we will be looking at the first six verses of this chapter. So Isaiah 49. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. And to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations. That my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to you for your word. We're grateful to you for the fact that we have it in our own language. That we have copies of it in our possession. Uh, that we can freely read it and study it and gather in this place without fear. And Father, I... At the same time, recognize that apart from the work of your Holy Spirit, uh, we can't accomplish anything of significance here. So I pray that your Spirit would come and do what only he can do. Uh, that the same Spirit that inspired Isaiah to write these words down would be our teacher. Uh, that he would help us understand your truth, but, but along with that, that he would also give us a deep and passionate love for your truth. And he, he would give us wills that gladly obey it. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What's your vision for your life? Where do you want to be in 5, 10, 15 years? More importantly, at the end of your life, looking back, what do you hope to have accomplished? In other words, what are your ambitions? Have you thought about it? I hope you have. Life is a gift, a stewardship. It's to be invested, not frittered away. And it's to be invested according to the wishes and instructions of its owner. Now, ambition has gotten a bit of a bad rap in Christian circles. I think that's because we have such a tendency toward selfish ambition and vain conceit, which are clearly condemned by the word of God. But ambition per se is, is actually a good thing. Now, the passage we just read is one of a series in Isaiah about 
the servant of the Lord. These are clearly prophecies of the Messiah. And this one, which is the second one in the series, gives the scope of God's vision, of God's ambition for his son. Now, for us as human parents, we need to be careful about having ambitions for our children. All too often, our ambitions for our kids are simply that they would do what we hoped we would do and weren't able to, uh, that my son would be able to go on to college football and then perhaps make it to the NFL. And if God didn't wire him that way, that's a really heavy burden to lay on him. But with God the Father and God the Son, it's another matter altogether. For one thing, of course, God the Father is always right. God the Father perfectly knows exactly what ought to be. He has every right to have plans for his son, and the Father and the Son are always in full agreement. So this gives us the ambition of God the Father for his son who would come as the servant of the Lord. And our mission, God's will for our lives, needs to nest within and flow from that mission. So let's first just ask the question, what was the mission of the Messiah? Well, first of all, the Messiah did indeed come to restore to right relationship with God those who were already, in some sense, the people of God. We read it in, in, in verse 5, and now the Lord says, listen, he who formed me in the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. He was there to bring God's people back to him, and it was a necessary task. If you have read the Old Testament, you're aware of the sad story of Israel's history. Uh, time after time after time, they rebelled against him. Time after time after time, they went after false gods. God would allow their enemies to oppress them as a result. They'd cry out to him for deliverance. He delivered them time after time, and time after time, they went right back to their rebellious ways until finally God sent them into exile as sort of the ultimate sanction against their disobedience. And when they came back from exile, they didn't sin in quite the same ways. They never again lapsed into that same kind of idolatry. And yet, still, their hearts were not right toward God. Reading at the very end of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi, we read that the people of Israel were involved in polluted offerings, offering to God second best. They were involved in marital unfaithfulness. They were engaging in mixed marriages in which they married those who were outside the people of God in direct disobedience to the commands of God. They withheld their tithes and their offerings. And by the time you get to Jesus, you, you realize that the characteristic of the spiritual life of the people of God was simply hypocritical legalism. So it had to be done. It was an absolutely necessary task. When Jesus came, the people of God desperately needed restoration. And it was an honorable task. Uh, there's, there's nothing menial about this. He says, I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord for doing this. It was a glorious calling. And it was certainly a difficult task. If you have read through the Old Testament, you're aware of the fact that being a prophet, being someone who called God's people back to faithfulness to the covenant was a pretty hazardous undertaking. Uh, the career of a prophet was not an easy one. Uh, prophets were often rejected and despised, sometimes beaten, sometimes even killed. So it needed doing. It was an honorable task. It was a huge, awesome, difficult task, 
but it was too small. Merely restoring those who already had a nominal connection to God was not big enough for the Lord's servant. This massive, noble task is called by God himself to light a thing. The one who came to be the Messiah of the Jewish people was designated by God to be a light for the nations, to bring light to the nations, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, when we read light to the nations, that means then that light is the true knowledge of the true God. Light here has to do with revelation. It has to do with knowing what otherwise you would not know. You see, we cannot attain to the knowledge of God simply through our own wisdom, through our own reasoning, through our own cleverness, through logic. We can't know who God is because of the sinfulness of who we are. Now, what is true about God is evident in creation, we're told in Romans chapter 1, but our brains are too fogged up by our rebellion to even recognize it for what it is. We can only know God if God makes himself known to us. Only through special revelation from God can we have that kind of light. And here's the twist that would have been a shock to the first hearers of this. That light is for the nations. Now, the word nations sort of has a double meaning here. Uh, On the one hand, nation originally simply meant something along the lines of people group. Now, it wasn't country like we know today. Uh, The modern concept of country didn't even exist in biblical times. Rather, it meant a people who thought of themselves as us as opposed to them. Uh, They might have a common language, common history, uh, common religion, Uh, Sometimes you can have a lot of nations in a pretty small space. So, for instance, when the Israelites came into the land of Canaan, they found numerous nations, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, all those kind of people, in an area you can drive across in a couple of hours. These were nations. And so God is saying he's going to take the light to the nations. But see, the word took on a twist. Because we are the people of God, they are the nations. And so the word took on the connotation of Gentile, dirty, rejected, other, displeasing to God. People, we're awfully glad we aren't. And both of those meanings are involved right here. So he's saying that not just the nation of Israel, but the nations are the subjects of God's care and concern. And that means then that the servant's mission was to bring the light of the true knowledge of the true God to despised, lost people groups currently outside the people of God. And the purpose of that light was not judgment, but deliverance, that salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. Salvation meaning deliverance from the penalty and the power, and ultimately even the presence of sin. And this would be accomplished by the servant. Now, how he's going to do that isn't explained in this text. But if you keep reading in Isaiah, and it's always, by the way, a really good idea to read big contexts to understand something. You read all the the way to Isaiah 53, and what you discover is that the servant would do that by offering himself as a sacrifice, by being a substitute for sinners. And so we read that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brings us peace was on him. 
and with his stripes we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's how the servant would do this, by offering himself as the one true sacrifice that all the Old Testament sacrifices were merely pointing toward, who would actually take away the sins of the people. And that's going to be true, that's going to extend to the ends of the earth. The reference here switches from, if you will, ethnographic to geographic, but literally the intention of God is that the knowledge of this salvation would reach the ends of the earth. Every people, everywhere on the planet. And what God is saying here is that only that is big enough. That the mission of the Messiah is inevitably and necessarily global in scope. And so as we read through the Old Testament, we discover this isn't the first time he's mentioned this. It literally is the theme of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. That God has always had the entire world in view, even during the time he narrowed his focus to one people group, uh, the children of Abraham. And so in God's call to Abraham, even one promising to bless him, he said, through you, all the families, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And this theme continues literally from there all the way to the book of Revelation, where we read in Revelation 5 that the atoning work of Jesus was global in scope. You were worthy, the angel sang to the lamb, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And with your blood you purchased people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. In other words, the atoning blood of Jesus that saved you if you are a Christian bought you into a global plan, a global agenda that you are now a part of. And of course, the work of God is not a failure. We keep reading into into chapter 7 and we read, in fact, that there will be in heaven a multitude no one can number from every tribe and tongue and people and nation standing around the throne worshiping our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the mission of the Messiah. And anything less is simply too small. That's the fundamental theme of this text. God intends to have a people to the praise of his glory from every people group in every place on this planet. Now, how does that connect then with God's will for your life? How do I justify the statement I made that your life must, your mission must nest within the mission of the people of God? How do you know God's will for your life? Well, I think there's a common misconception in evangelical circles about what God's will is and how you find out about it. Uh, We think that God has a will for the universe and we're really glad about that. We're really glad that we know how history's gonna end and we're glad that God wins. But we somehow think that God's will for our lives has nothing to do with that. As though we're a special case, irrelevant to the rest of the universe, God's got a will for us, and we've got to somehow find out what it is through various means that are proposed by various people, but we don't have a conception that it fits into what God is up to in the universe. And that's dead wrong. Now, to begin with, of course, much of God's will for your life is absolutely crystal clear in the Bible. So, for instance, we read in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, this is the will of God. And we lean forward. Yes, what is it? 
your holiness, your sanctification. God wills that you live a holy life. And all of the commands of Scripture are indications of what God wants us to do. So I know it is God's will for my life to love my neighbor as myself. I know it is God's will for my life to love my wife as Christ loved the church. Just numerous things like that. But then what about that that area of, of God's will that lies outside of such specific commands? When that's where we are not disconnected bits, totally cut off from what God is up to in the universe. As the people of God who have been incorporated into Christ, we are now part of God's global agenda. And that is true for every single born-again person on the planet. When you were born again, you were born into this agenda. And God's will for your life connects to and must nest within God's purpose for his church and for human history. You, if you are a Christian, you have to remember that you are not your own. You don't belong to yourself, and you don't get to decide what you're going to do with your life, because it's not yours. If you're called to Christ, you're called to a package deal. And I want to speak for a moment to this issue of calling, because it it always comes up when we talk about missionary service. Uh, I grew up, a good Southern Baptist, roots in East Tennessee, with this idea of calling that was very mystical in nature. And it involved various tiers of Christians. First, there's the ordinary people who aren't called. They're, they're off the hook. But then above them, there are pastors, special people, who are called by God to be holier than everybody else, gifted in special ways and have special responsibilities. But even above the pastors, there's a third category, those poor, unfortunate few who are called to be missionaries. And of course, we all know about them. We know that they can walk on water, their shadows heal the sick, etc. Uh, we do joke sometimes during our orientation for new missionaries, we have, we have a lake on our campus. And we joke that the president of the IMB stands on one side of the lake And the missionaries about to graduate stand on the other side. And to graduate, they must walk over to get their certificate. Because otherwise, obviously, they're not spiritual enough to be missionaries. That's the common misconception. The thing is, it's dead wrong. It's absolutely dead wrong. If you look at the, the uses of the word call in the New Testament, you will find that the overwhelming majority of them are simply the call of the gospel. When God is the subject of the verb to call, it's God calling sinners to repent and put their faith in Jesus. That's the fundamental calling of the New Testament, which means that if you are a Christian, you are automatically called and you have responded to that call. But here's the rub. That call comes as a package deal. See, everyone who is called to salvation is called to several other things as well, all at the same time. So, as I've already mentioned, if you're called to salvation, you're called to sanctification. Every believer is called equally to live a holy life, growing steadily in conformity to the image of Jesus. You are also called to your situation. 
1 Corinthians chapter 7 makes it clear that things like whether you're married or single, whether you're slave or free, those things are callings from God. So that as a believer, you are called to each situation God has placed you in. Now, these may vary over time. They may change. But you are called to your job. The very word vocation means calling. And it stems from the the realization of the reformers that God could call you to be a plumber as much as he could to be a priest. You are called to your job. You are called to your neighborhood. You're not there by accident. God called you to be there, to be his representative, to share the gospel, be an ambassador for Christ in that place. You are called to your family. You're called to all of that. I would even go so far as to say that wherever you find yourself on a regular basis, you're there as an expression of the call of God. And so your avocation as much as your vocation counts. As far as I'm concerned, I am called to Gold's Gym on Broad Street in Richmond, Virginia, because I'm there four to five times a week. And because I think that, I go into the gym thinking I'm on duty. I'm here as a representative of Jesus. And even in that situation, I regard myself as having an obligation, a joyful one, to share the gospel and represent Christ well. And as a result of that, we've seen some people come to Jesus through that setting as well. You're called to your situation. I might also add that every Christian is called to suffer for the name of Jesus. And the fact that most of us don't is actually the exception and the anomaly. Most Christians in the world know that very well. That suffering is a normal part of the normal Christian life and therefore not to be a thing to run away from, nor the prospect of suffering be an excuse for disobedience. And then you're called to service. Every one of us is called to service. We are all called to service in the body of Christ, utilizing the spiritual gifts that God has given us. And we're all called to service for the agenda of Christ in the world as his ambassadors. So if you're a Christian, all of these things are part of your calling. You are a called person. You belong to him. You're his body on earth. You're his ambassadors. Your mission is a subset of his. So if your vision for your life is wrapped up in the things that the world runs after, if your vision for your life is wrapped up in possessions, pleasures, power, or even in comfort and safety, then you may not even be saved because those are the things the world runs after, not the things that the people of God do. Now, if your vision for your life is wrapped up in good things like building a family, Doing constructive work, that's good. That should be part of your vision. It's okay, but it's way too small. If your vision for your life is wrapped up in glorifying God in your church, in your vocation, in your local community where you are, excellent. That is exactly what it should be. But it's still too small. You belong to a Messiah whose purposes are emphatically global, and yours must be too. So the question is not, if you're a Christian, am I called to global missions? You are. The question is, how am I to fulfill that calling? Now, Isaiah prophesied that that would be the mission of Messiah centuries before he ever showed up on the scene. Jesus came 2,000 years ago, poured out his Holy Spirit on the church at Pentecost. We've had almost 2,000 years now 
of, of missionary activity. So how are we doing in terms of this task? If the vision of God is that the Messiah would bring salvation to the ends of the earth, how far has it gone? Well, we estimate, using that earlier definition of people groups, that there's about 11,000 peoples on the face of the earth, about 11,000. Of those 11,000, 6,000, slightly over half, have no effective access to the gospel. They are unreached people groups. Looked at another way, there's about 8 billion people on earth. Right now, more than 4 billion of them live without any access to the good news of Jesus. And many more technically have access, but still haven't heard. Just to give a frame of reference, the year I was born, there were 2.9 billion people living on the planet. And there's now over 4 billion with zero access to the gospel. And as best as we can estimate, the world is about 4% evangelical Christian, which means that 96% of the people in the world, if nothing changes, will die and go to hell. And the resources are here. We are the most evangelized country on earth. We have the most believers, the most money, the most technology, the most churches. We have the resources to fulfill what God has given his church to do. So, God thought it was too small, too light a thing for Jesus the Messiah to settle exclusively on the huge, glorious task of restoration. It was worth doing, it just wasn't enough. Jesus' mission was the global spread of salvation. So what should we do? How does this apply to us here and now? Well, the first thing I would say is, in a room this size, I would guess, I'm nearly certain, that there are people here who do not know the Lord Jesus. And so I would simply like to remind you of the gospel that is at the heart of this whole message. The good news of the gospel begins with news about God. It is news that there is a God, but that every single one of us is accountable to him for every thought, word, and deed of our entire lives. And his standard is perfection. This God is holy, and he cannot coexist with unholiness of any sort. That then brings us to the bad news about ourselves. Every one of us is unholy. Every one of us is a rebel against God. Every one of us has chosen to go our own way rather than his way. And that can take a multitude of forms. Yes, it can take the form of of gross, disgusting sin. It can also take the respectable form of living a good life and thinking that's going to be enough. Thinking that you can obligate God to accept you into his presence by how good you think you are. Which means that you have rejected what he says about you. And so whether the sin be disgusting or respectable, every single one of us deserves nothing but condemnation from our holy God. But this holy God is also astonishingly a gracious and loving God. And rather than giving us what we deserve, he chose to become a person in Jesus Christ, to become a man who would live the life we should have lived of perfect obedience to the Father, And then die the death we deserve to die in our place, taking on himself the wrath we deserve for our rebellion against God, paying a debt we could not pay. He then rose again from the dead, having conquered sin and death and hell itself, 
He ascended to his Father's right hand, poured out his Holy Spirit on his people, and then has sent out word to all people everywhere that they should repent, which means lay down their arms, stop rebelling against God, and put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And his guarantee is that everyone who does so will be forgiven of their sins, will be reborn, because previously we were dead in our sin, will be adopted as his child, will be sealed with his Holy Spirit, will be gifted and empowered for his service, and will be guaranteed eternity in infinite joy and glory with him. And if you have never repented and put your trust in Jesus, that is the thing you must do. That is the most important decision facing you for the rest of your life, and I would plead with you for your own sake to repent and believe in Jesus. But for those of us who are Christians, I would simply ask you, have you settled for a vision that's too small? Have you settled for a vision that doesn't nest within the purposes of him who owns you? Have you settled for a vision that doesn't advance his purposes of salvation reaching the ends of the earth? And my urging would be settle for nothing less than a God-sized vision for your life. Well, how do you do that? The first thing I would say to everyone here who is a believer is to urge you to grow yourself as a disciple of Jesus. The Bible has no conception of a believer who is not a growing disciple. There aren't different tiers of Christians. You are to grow yourself to become more and more like Jesus. And by the way, this gets directly at the whole issue of missionary preparation. We define a missionary simply as a disciple of Jesus who crosses whatever barriers may exist to make disciples for Jesus where Jesus is not yet known. You can't give away what you don't have. You must be a disciple yourself, whatever is the means through which God is calling you to fulfill the Great Commission. Uh, You're to make use of the means that God has given you in order to grow more and more like Christ, the means of his word, his pr- of prayer, and of his people. See, you grow to be more and more like Christ in the context of the body of Christ. And so being a faithful disciple not only means you yourself are spending deep, extended, quality time with him daily. It also means that you engage faithfully within a local body of Christ. Because unless you have all the spiritual gifts, and I have on, on, on good, uh, good counsel that you are not, that you do not, you don't have everything you or anybody else needs to become more and more like Christ. You need the body of Christ. So I would encourage you, grow as a disciple yourself, grow as a member of a local church, and if you're not a committed member of a local church, let me suggest you do something about that today. Um, Learn about God's word, but also learn about God's world. Now, we as Americans are notoriously geographically challenged. Um, I, I teach Introduction to, to Missions at Southern Seminary. I'll, I'll be teaching it uh, in January again. And uh, just to make the point of how little people know about the world, on the first day of class, I always pass out a blank world map. In, in other words, it has the lines drawn, but no words. And then on the board, on the whiteboard, I randomly draw, write the names of 10 countries, 10 easy, obvious countries like the Sultanate of Brunei and Kyrgyzstan and Bhutan and Togo 
and places like that. Uh, typically what happens is 50% of my students get them all wrong. 49% get one or two right. And maybe one or two students get them all right. And inevitably those students turn out to be international students and not Americans at all. Because we don't know the world. But this is the world for which Christ died. This is the world that God so loved that he sent his one and only son. And it behooves us, if we're going to line up with God's purposes, to know the setting in which those purposes are to be lived out. Let me urge you to get to know the world. You can get a $5 world map from National Geographic and put it up on your wall. You can get an excellent resource like Operation World. It's a volume that will tell you something about every country in the world, along with prayer requests for those countries. You can watch the news, which, by the way, almost never is from an American source something like BBC or, or like that, and find out what's going on in the world. And then find the country, find out something about the country. Because all of that is designed not simply to be an end in itself, but to lead you to the next thing I would urge you to do, which is to give yourself to prayer. Give yourself to prayer for the nations and the advance of the gospel. There's an organization in Southern Baptist life, it, it's it's not as widespread or popular as it used to be. An organization called Women's Missionary Union that puts out a prayer calendar. And what they would do is they would put our names on the prayer calendar on our birthdays. Now, for some of us in sensitive areas, that just meant my initials. But we knew then that on our birthdays, there were thousands upon thousands of godly women across the United States praying for us. And many of my colleagues and I would intentionally schedule some of the hardest things we planned to do for that day because with that kind of prayer support, we felt invincible. And I can give you story after story of how God has answered the prayers of his people through significant advances to the gospel. And I connected it to the news because that's the setting in which the work of God is going on. So, for example, many of you may have heard that there was an earthquake in Turkey earlier this year. What you probably don't know is that the people of God in that country rallied, responded with a kind of love not shown by their Muslim neighbors. They met human needs, they poured into people's lives, and the result has been a significant advance of the gospel in that part of the world. And when that earthquake happened, that's what I immediately started praying for. Not only that God would rescue people who were trapped in the rubble, but that God would empower the witness of his people, and he did. I would urge you to make prayer for the nations part of your daily life. And if you want specific prayer requests, my own organization, the International Mission Board, has a prayer site, imb.org, pretty easy to remember, slash pray. Uh, you go there and you will find prayer requests that will occupy you for the rest of your life. And many of them will be literally fresh that day. I would encourage you to make prayer that deep a part of your life. Obviously also, I would encourage you to continue what you are already doing in giving to the support of missions. Um, we cannot send people to the field if we don't have the resources to send them. And I want to thank you as a church for what you have already done. Thank you for the ways that you have supported the work of my organization for, as I understand it, about three decades so far. Thank you. Let me simply urge you to make that even more of a priority. 
Uh, we're coming up on the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Uh, what my family and I do is, since this is a, an offering to support missions at the time of Christmas, we figure that since, this is, since Christmas is in honor of Jesus, we should probably honor him more than anyone else. So we simply give to Lottie Moon more than the most expensive present we bought for anybody in our family. And that seems to us a good way to do it. But all of that is designed to get around to the most urgent need that we have. Yes, we need prayer, desperately. Yes, we need resources, desperately. What we need most is people. We are in a position to send more people than we have people to send right now. And we have literally hundreds of job requests around the world that no one is filling. And these job requests would take you to a place where, as it stands now, if no one goes, those people will never hear the good news of Jesus. And so I would encourage you to change your default question to, I will only go if God literally beats me over the head and makes me, to, I will go where I'm needed most unless God clearly directs otherwise. And let me just say two things about that. Uh, one is, if you have a profession, we can use it to get places where missionaries can't go. The vast majority of our job requests are places that will not grant missionary visas. But you can go there utilizing things like medicine, utilizing every form of business, utilizing every form of engineering. Um, we have sent people to set up law firms doing international business in places. We even sent one person to the former Soviet Union um, who was a police officer, and he went because the police force there said, you know, we don't know how to interrogate prisoners without torturing them. Would you come teach us how, that, how you can do that, if that's even possible? And so he went to do that. Uh, every kind of sports, I personally have coached the sport of American football with Central Asian University students. Now, there's almost any profession that can be used in order to get the gospel where it needs to go. So don't think just because you're not a preacher that you're, you're not qualified. What you need to do is be a growing disciple of Jesus who knows how to share the gospel and make disciples and who then has something to leverage to get in places otherwise you wouldn't go. Let me also say something about age. Um, yes, it is true that we need young adults. Unquestionably, we need young adults. But we need older adults too. So I've spent most of my adult life overseas. And um, believe it or not, there, there used to be hair up here. And this used to be red. And when this fell out and this turned white, I could get away with so much more boldness in sharing the gospel in the settings that I was living in. Because most of the world has a more biblical view of age than the United States does. And looks at age as indicating wisdom, which meant that they had to listen to me because my beard was white, rather than ignore me because I was just a young punk like they were. So, yes, we need old, young people, we also need old people. Yes, we need preachers, we also need people of every possible profession. The key issue is this. Do you regard yourself as belonging to God and not yourself? Do you recognize that the purpose of your life is to fulfill the agenda of the one who saved you and not to fulfill the American dream? 
And are you prepared to say, I will go anywhere and do whatever you ask with a prioritization toward where I'm needed most? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for uh, their faithfulness in praying and in giving and in sending and going. And Father, I pray that you would continue to raise up people out of this church, uh, people who will go where the gospel has never been heard. And Father, I pray that even now, you would, you would begin that process of stirring up your people to take the gospel where it needs to go. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.